Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and together we will brave the harsh conditions and sometimes even harsher inhabitants of the American Old West. Now, we've got a lot to get through today, so without any further ado, let's kick this episode off with the traditional iTunes review. Radio Drama with a Modern Twist by Timmy G is Awesome A wonderful modern update of the radio dramas from the past. Each story is read with wonderful voice acting from Sean and accented with high-quality sound effects. The production values outshine many of the storytelling podcasts that have been riding high at the top of the Apple Podcast charts for years. Listen and subscribe today. Many thanks indeed to Timmy G is Awesome for the kind words, and many thanks also to the generous patrons of Stories of Your and Yours, Dan from the Netflix and Swill podcast, Nick from the Epic Film Guys podcast, and Kayla from the Get Grim podcast. Thank you so, so much for supporting the show. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Now, I'm not going to do this every episode, of course, but I'd like to give everyone just a brief overview of what exactly is involved when you become a patron of the show. When you become a patron of the show, there are four different tiers that you can join. Starting at $2 a month, we have the Creative Types tier. At this tier, you get a shout-out on the show and my undying gratitude. Once merchandise is created, which will be soon, you'll receive a Stories of Your and Yours laptop sticker, and you'll get bonus content. That means one full episode per month between seasons. At the $5 a month level, we have the Fledgling Storytellers. Here, patrons receive all the benefits of the Creative Type tier, plus the patrons-only Stories of Your and Yours magnet. If and when there is a redesign of stickers or magnets or the logo or what have you, I'll send you that too. And that goes for my patron merchandise at all tiers. You'll also get more bonus content. Anything above and beyond the one bonus episode per month in the off-season lives here. In addition, your story request takes top priority, provided the story is public domain or you have the rights to it. At the $10 a month level are the Weavers of Yarns. At this level, you receive all the rewards of the previous tiers, plus early access to each episode during the season. Right now, I'm posting the episodes about a week ahead of time, and the plan is to keep that going. You also get the exclusive Stories of Your and Yours bookmark. And once every year, you can be part of the story. I'll tell you some stories that I've got coming up, you tell me which one you want to be in, and I'll find a part for you. But Sean, you might be saying, I'm not a voice actor. Well, that's okay. Maybe you will have a speaking part, but maybe you'll do a sound effect or a background voice. Whatever fits your situation, that's what we'll do. And when you're in the story, you're in the credits, which means you can plug whatever you want on the show. And finally, at the highest tier of $20 per month, we have Mark Freakin' Twain. At this level, you receive all rewards of the previous tiers, plus once a year you'll get your own personal recording. You want a voicemail message? You want a school presentation? You have some other kind of script you want me to read? Bedtime story for the kids? I will record it for you at this level. I am your own personal recording artist. Plus, you can be a part of the show again. Choose an upcoming author, or I'll choose one for you, and you can come on the show and do the background for that author and that week's story. And this reward is transferable, so if you don't want to be on the show but you know someone who does, they're welcome to do it. Plus, at this level, once a year I will send you a featured short story collection. I'm always looking for good short stories, as you probably know, and every now and then I come across some pretty cool collections. So at this level, you'll get one of those per year sent right to your door. Now, as I said, this is not something I'll always do. I'll generally announce any changes to the Patreon, but I did want to at least get the details out there to let everyone know what the benefits of each tier are. Now, if you want to help out the show in another way besides becoming a patron, of course you can always leave an iTunes review or just spread the word, whether that's sharing posts on social media or just letting your friends know about your favorite short story podcast, which hopefully is this one. Speaking of which, remember, you can find this show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SYYpodcast. And you can email the show at SYYpodcast at gmail.com. Now, this is the part of the show where I would usually let you know about this week's podcast partner. But I'm going to wait on that for just a few minutes for reasons that will shortly become apparent. Now, if you can hear the wind in the background, I apologize. It's a little windy tonight. I'm uh, recording this at the end of February. And... Uh, we got a little windstorm going on right now. I'm hoping to be able to even record a story after this, but eh, it'll depend on what the wind decides to do. Anyway, 
This week, we will be featuring two short stories that take place in the American Old West. The first story is called The Outcasts of Poker Flat by Bret Hart. If you're like me, you were familiar with the professional wrestler Bret the Hitman Hart long before you were familiar with the short story author Bret Hart, spelled with an E at the end, but that's neither here nor there. Bret Hart the author, whose given name is Francis Bret Hart, was born in 1836 in Albany, New York. Hart published his first work at 11 years old, a poem called Autumn Musings. His family made fun of him so mercilessly for it that he would later tell a friend that it's a wonder he ever wrote another word. You may not be surprised to learn that, like most of the authors we talk about here, Bret Hart worked in many different kinds of jobs. He received no formal education after the age of 13, and he moved to California at the age of 17. This would ultimately influence a lot of what Bret Hart wrote about, as he is most well known for his stories of the California Gold Rush. While in California, he worked as a miner, a teacher, a messenger, and a journalist. After working as a journalist for a few years and moving around to different parts of California, Hart had his first short story published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1863. A year later, he would start a literary journal of his own called The Californian. Now, Bret Hart was friends with Mark Twain at this point, and Twain would write weekly articles for his publication. In 1868, he became the editor of Overland Monthly, and it was for this publication that he would write The Luck of Roaring Camp and The Outcasts of Poker Flat, which propelled him to worldwide fame. It was this success that led to his being offered $10,000 for a yearly salary by the Atlantic Monthly to produce one story per month. He left for the East Coast at this point, abandoning an opportunity to be a professor at the University of California, and he would never return to the West. This would be the high point of his career, and though he would never stop writing, his work never got quite as much attention or acclaim as it had during his time in California. Now, his position at the Atlantic Monthly only lasted about a year due to reliability issues. He was having issues with the, the bottle, if you will. And in 1878, Bret Hart accepted a position as U.S. Consul in Krefeld, Germany, and he would later hold the same position in Glasgow, Scotland. Hart remained in the British Isles after his time in the consulate, eventually settling in London in 1885. He brought his family to Europe with him, though by all accounts he was essentially estranged from his wife for most of the time they were married. He had a falling out with Mark Twain, who would in turn speak out against Bret Hart whenever he had the chance. Hart died in London in 1902 of throat cancer. As for today's story by Bret Hart, The Outcasts of Poker Flat, it was first published in January 1869 in the Overland Monthly, as mentioned before. The Overland Monthly was a magazine founded the year prior in 1868 by Anton Roman, who was a bookseller who moved to California during the gold rush. Bret Hart was, as mentioned earlier, the editor of the magazine at the time of the story's publication, and he would only remain there until 1870. The Overland Monthly was meant, as Roman put it, to help the material development of the coast. So it was not just a literary periodical. So this magazine existed in some iteration until 1935, but mostly in name only. It merged with The Californian at one point, and with Out West Magazine at another time, and it would eventually cease publication in July of 1935. Other contributors during its run were Mark Twain, Ambrose Bierce, Clark Ashton Smith, and Jack London, among many others. Now, one special note about this story in particular. In this story, there are a few characters that I thought could be better voiced by some friends of mine. So I asked for an assist, and they graciously came through. The voice of Piney will be provided by Jen from Haunted Happenstance. Kate from the Explorers podcast will be the voice of the Duchess. And you'll hear Deb Ennis, otherwise known as my mom, as the voice of Mother Shipton. Now, of course, I'm not just going to tell you about the shows that Jen and Kate have although I am a listener. I'm going to have them tell you just what these shows are all about, and we'll do that right now. Hey there, I'm Jennifer, and I host Haunted Happenstance, a creepy and quirky little audio drama set in a historic residence in Boston, Massachusetts. You see, I've always loved a good ghost story, and as it turns out, ghosts have always loved me too. Convenient? Maybe. Coincidence? Perhaps. But I think it's a bit more than that. Let's see if you agree. So sit back and get ready to join me and my neighbors for some truly spooky tales that can only be explained as haunted happenstance. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. (laughs) 
What kind of underwear was Queen Elizabeth I having to deal with when she dominated that English throne? What did women in ancient Egypt use for contraception? Was the 19th century hoop skirt used to suppress women, or did it actually liberate them? Welcome to the Explores, where we time travel back through women's history to discover what it was really like to be them. Join me as we walk through past eras, exploring their worlds so we can appreciate their stories. Ready to meet a whole host of fascinating women? Let's go traveling. Thanks to Kate and Jen, and as I mentioned before, you'd be well served to check out their shows. Our second story today is called The Girl Who Got Rattled, and it was written by Stuart Edward White. White was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1873. He was an avid outdoorsman from the time he was young, and that carried over into his writing, as much of his early work centered around the outdoors. In fact, White became friends with fellow avid outdoorsman and 26th President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. His writing career began during his college years, when a professor encouraged him to attempt to publish a short story. White in turn sold his story, A Man and His Dog, to Short Story Magazine. His first novel, The Westerners, would be published in 1901, and that was well received by critics. Two years later, White moved to California, and a year after that he married his wife Betty. Years later, he would serve in the military and become a major during World War I. White was also a world traveler and preferred to camp around and kind of rough it when he traveled, and of course that traveling also influenced his writing. Later in life, Stewart and Betty would discover spiritualism, much like Arthur Conan Doyle, and they would become pretty heavily involved in that. The two of them believed that Betty was a medium of sorts, and this would influence his later work from about 1937 until his death in 1946. Betty died in 1939, and a year later, White wrote a book called The Unobstructed Universe, which was based on communications he believed he had received from Betty through a medium. And the Unobstructed Universe is actually pretty well referenced today, even among uh, spiritualists and those who are into that sort of thing. Now, the story that we're going to hear today from Stuart White has a pretty simple history. The Girl Who Got Rattled was featured in White's collection called The Blazed Trail, which was published in 1902. This was his first published collection of short stories, which followed White's first two novels. In spiritualist circles, White's work is pretty well known, but this particular Old West story came into focus last year when it was adapted by the Coen brothers in their anthology called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Now, my good friend Moxie Labouche from the Your Brain on Facts podcast brought this story to my attention, and as it happens, she provides a guest voice this week in that story. I will say, if you saw The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the story here has enough differences to keep you on your toes. And one other note about this particular story, there are Native Americans involved, and the description of them is not exactly flattering. This, of course, is a product of the time and does not reflect the narrator's thoughts. Now, again, you've heard me say it before, but if you haven't checked out Your Brain on Facts yet, you'd be very well served to do so. I've been a fan for quite some time now, and Moxie does a great job on her show. So, let's see. We've covered the Patreon, we've covered the authors, we've covered this week's guest voices, and we've covered the backstory of the stories themselves, which just leaves us with this week's presentation. The Outcasts of Poker Flat by Bret Hart As Mr. John Oakhurst, gambler, stepped into the main street of Poker Flat on the morning of the 23rd of November, 1850, he was conscious of a change in its moral atmosphere since the preceding night. Two or three men, conversing earnestly together, ceased as he approached and exchanged significant glances. There was a Sabbath lull in the air, which, in a settlement unused to Sabbath influences, looked ominous. Mr. Oakhurst's calm, handsome face betrayed small concern in these indications. Whether he was conscious of any predisposing cause was another question. I reckon they're after somebody, he reflected. Likely it's me. He returned to his pocket the handkerchief with which he had been wiping away the red dust of poker flat from his neat boots and quietly discharged his mind of any further conjecture. In point of fact, Poker Flat was after somebody. It had lately suffered the loss of several thousand dollars, two valuable horses, and a prominent citizen. 
It was experiencing a spasm of virtuous reaction, quite as lawless and ungovernable as any of the acts that had provoked it. A secret committee had determined to rid the town of all improper persons. This was done permanently in regard of two men who were then hanging from the bow of a sycamore in the gulch, and temporarily in the banishment of certain other objectionable characters. I regret to say that some of these were ladies. It is but due to the sex, however, to state that their impropriety was professional, and it was only in such easily established standards of evil that Poker Flat ventured to sit in judgment. Mr. Oakhurst was right in supposing that he was included in this category. A few of the committee had urged hanging him as a possible example, and a sure method of reimbursing themselves from his pockets of the sums he had won from them. "'It's again justice,' said Jim Wheeler, "'to let this yer young man from Roaring Camp, an entire stranger, carry away our money.' But a crude sentiment of equity residing in the breasts of those who had been fortunate enough to win from Mr. Oakhurst overruled this narrower local prejudice. Mr. Oakhurst received his sentence with philosophic calmness, nonetheless coolly that he was aware of the hesitation of his judges. He was too much of a gambler not to accept the fate. With him, life was at best an uncertain game, and he recognized the usual percentage in favor of the dealer. A body of armed men accompanied the deported wickedness of Poker Flat to the outskirts of the settlement. Besides Mr. Oakhurst, who was known to be a coolly desperate man, and for whose intimidation the armed escort was intended, the expatriated party consisted of a young woman familiarly known as the Duchess, another who had won the title of Mother Shipton, and Uncle Billy, a suspected sluice robber and confirmed drunkard. The cavalcade provoked no comments from the spectators, nor was any word uttered by the escort. Only when the gulch which marked the uttermost limit of Poker Flat was reached, the leader spoke briefly and to the point. The exiles were forbidden to return at the peril of their lives. As the escort disappeared, their pent-up feelings found vent in a few hysterical tears from the Duchess, some bad language from Mother Shipton, and a Parthian volley of expletives from Uncle Billy. The philosophic Oakhurst alone remained silent. He listened calmly to Mother Shipton's desire to cut somebody's heart out, to the repeated statements of the Duchess that she would die in the road, and to the alarming oaths that seemed to be bumped out of Uncle Billy as he rode forward. With the easy good humor characteristic of his class, he insisted upon exchanging his own riding horse, Five Spot, for the sorry mule which the Duchess rode. But even this act did not draw the party into any closer sympathy. The young woman readjusted her somewhat draggled plumes with a feeble, faded coquetry. Mother Shipton eyed the possessor of Five Spot with malevolence, and Uncle Billy included the whole party in one sweeping anathema. The road to Sandy Bar, a camp that not having as yet experienced the regenerating influences of Poker Flat, consequently seemed to offer some invitation to the emigrants, lay over a steep mountain range. It was distant a day's severe travel. In that advanced season, the party soon passed out of the moist, temperate regions of the foothills into the dry, cold, bracing air of the Sierras. The trail was narrow and difficult. At noon, the Duchess, rolling out of her saddle upon the ground, declared her intention of going no further, and the party halted. The spot was singularly wild and impressive. A wooden amphitheater, surrounded on three sides by precipitous cliffs of naked granite, sloped gently toward the crest of another precipice that overlooked the valley. It was undoubtedly the most suitable spot for a camp, had camping been advisable. But Mr. Oakhurst knew that scarcely half the journey to Sandy Bar was accomplished and the party were not equipped or provisioned for delay. This fact he pointed out to his companions curtly, with a philosophic commentary on the folly of throwing up their hand before the game was played out. But they were furnished with liquor, which in this emergency stood them in place of food, fuel, rest, and prescience. In spite of his remonstrances, it was not long before they were more or less under its influence. Uncle Billy passed rapidly from a bellicose state into one of stupor, the Duchess became maudlin, and Mother Shipton snored. Mr. Oakhurst alone remained erect, leaning against a rock, calmly surveying them. Mr. Oakhurst did not drink. It interfered with a profession which required coolness, impassiveness, and presence of mind, and in his own language he couldn't afford it. As he gazed at his recumbent fellow exiles, the loneliness begotten of his pariah trade, his habits of life, his very vices, for the first time seriously oppressed him. He bestirred himself in dusting his black clothes, washing his hands and face, and other acts, characteristic of his studiously neat habits, and for a moment forgot his annoyance. 
The thought of deserting his weaker and more pitiable companions never perhaps occurred to him. Yet he could not help feeling the want of that excitement which, singularly enough, was most conducive to that calm equanimity for which he was notorious. He looked at the gloomy walls that rose a thousand feet sheer above the circling pines around him, at the sky, ominously clouded, at the valley below, already deepening into shadow, and, doing so, suddenly he heard his own name called. A horseman slowly ascended the trail. In the fresh, open face of the newcomer, Mr. Oakhurst recognized Tom Simpson, otherwise known as the Innocent of Sandy Bar. He had met him some months before over a little game and had, with perfect equanimity, won the entire fortune, amounting to some forty dollars, of that guileless youth. After the game was finished, Mr. Oakhurst drew the youthful speculator behind the door and thus addressed him. "'Tommy, you're a good little man, but you can't gamble worth a cent. Don't ever try it again.' He then handed him his money back, pushed him gently from the room, and so made a devoted slave of Tom Simpson. There was a remembrance of this in the boyish and enthusiastic greeting of Mr. Oakhurst. He had started, he said, to go to Poker Flat to seek his fortune. Alone? No, not exactly alone. In fact, a giggle, he had run away with Piney Woods. Didn't Mr. Oakhurst remember Piney, she that used to wait on the table at the temperance house? They had been engaged a long time, but old Jake Woods had objected, and so they had run away, and were going to Poker Flat to be married, and here they were and they were tired out, and how lucky it was they had found a place to camp and company. All this the innocent delivered rapidly, while Piney, a stout, comely damsel of fifteen, emerged from behind the pine tree, where she had been blushing unseen, and rode to the side of her lover. Mr. Oakhurst seldom troubled himself with sentiment, still less with propriety, but he had a vague idea that the situation was not fortunate. He retained, however, his presence of mind sufficiently to kick Uncle Billy, who was about to say something, and Uncle Billy was sober enough to recognize in Mr. Oakhurst's kick a superior power that would not bear trifling. He then endeavored to dissuade Tom Simpson from delaying further, but in vain. He even pointed out the fact that there was no provision nor means of making a camp, but, unluckily, the innocent met this objection by assuring the party that he was provided with an extra mule loaded with provisions, and by the discovery of a rude attempt at a log house near the trail. Piney can say with Mrs. Oakhurst!' said the innocent, pointing to the duchess, and I can shift for myself. Nothing but Mr. Oakhurst's admonishing foot saved Uncle Billy from bursting into a roar of laughter. As it was, he felt compelled to retire up the cannon until he could recover his gravity. There he confided the joke to the tall pine trees, with many slaps of his leg, contortions of his face, and the usual profanity. But when he returned to the party, he found them seated by the fire, for the air had grown strangely chill, and the sky overcast, in apparently amicable conversation. Piney was actually talking in an impulsive girlish fashion to the Duchess, who was listening with an interest and animation she had not shown for many days. The innocent was holding forth, apparently with equal effect, to Mr. Oakhurst and Mother Shipton, who was actually relaxing into amiability. "'Is this your danged picnic?' said Uncle Billy, with inward scorn, an idea that mingled with the alcoholic fumes that disturbed his brain. It was apparently of a jocular nature, for he felt impelled to slap his leg again and cram his fist into his mouth. As the shadows crept slowly up the mountain, a slight breeze rocked the tops of the pine trees and moaned through their long and gloomy aisles. The ruined cabin, patched and covered with pine boughs, was set apart for the ladies. As the lovers parted, they unaffectedly exchanged a kiss, so honest and sincere that it might have been heard above the swaying pines. The frail duchess and the malevolent mother Shipton were probably too stunned to remark upon the last evidence of simplicity, and so turned without a word to the hut. The fire was replenished, the men lay down before the door, and in a few minutes were asleep. Mr. Oakhurst was a light sleeper. Toward morning he awoke benumbed and cold. As he stirred the dying fire, the wind, which was now blowing strongly, brought to his cheek that which caused the blood to leave it. Snow. He started to his feet with the intention of awakening the sleepers, for there was no time to lose. But turning to where Uncle Billy had been lying, he found him gone. A suspicion leaped into his brain, and a curse to his lips. He ran to the spot where the mules had been tethered. They were no longer there. The tracks were already rapidly disappearing in the snow. The momentary excitement brought Mr. Oakhurst back to the fire with his usual calm. He did not waken the sleepers. 
The innocent slumbered peacefully with a smile on his good-humored freckled face. The virgin Piney slept behind her frailer sisters as sweetly as though attended by celestial guardians, and Mr. Oakhurst, drawing his blanket over his shoulders, stroked his mustaches and waited for the dawn. It came slowly, in a whirling mist of snowflakes that dazzled and confused the eye. What could be seen of the landscape appeared magically changed. He looked over the valley and summed up the present and future in two words. Snowed in. A careful inventory of the provisions which fortunately for the party had been stored within the hut, and so escaped the felonious fingers of Uncle Billy, disclosed the fact that with care and prudence they might last ten days longer. That is said Mr. Oakhurst quietly to the innocent, if you're willing to board us. If you ain't, and perhaps you better not, you can wait till Uncle Billy gets back with provisions. For some occult reason, Mr. Oakhurst could not bring himself to disclose Uncle Billy's rascality, and so offered the hypothesis that he had wandered from camp and had accidentally stampeded the animals. He dropped a warning to the Duchess and Mother Shipton, who of course knew the facts of their associate's defection. They'll find out the truth about us all when they find out anything, he added significantly, and there's no good in frightening them now. Tom Simpson not only put all his worldly store at the disposal of Mr. Oakhurst, but seemed to enjoy the prospect of their enforced seclusion. We'll have a good camp for a week, and then the snow will melt, and we'll all go back together. The cheerful gaiety of the young man in Mr. Oakhurst's calm infected the others. The innocent, with the aid of pine boughs, extemporized the thatch for the roofless cabin, and the Duchess directed Piney in the rearrangement of the interior with a taste and tact that opened the blue eyes of the provincial maiden to their fullest extent. "'I reckon now you're used to find things in Poker Flat,' said Piney. The Duchess turned away sharply to conceal something that reddened her cheeks through their professional tint, and Mother Shipton requested Quite Piney not to chatter. But when Mr. Oakhurst returned from a weary search for the trail, he heard the sound of happy <laughs> laughter echoed from the rocks. He stopped in some alarm, and his thoughts first naturally reverted to the whiskey, which he had prudently cashed. "'And yet it don't somehow sound like whiskey,' said the gambler. It was not until he caught the sight of the blazing fire through the still blinding storm and the group around it that he settled into the conviction that it was square fun. Whether Mr. Oakhurst had cashed his cards with the whiskey as something debarred of the free access of the community, I cannot say. It was certain that, in Mother Shipton's words, he didn't say cards once during that evening. Happily, the time was beguiled by an accordion produced somewhat ostentatiously by Tom Simpson from his pack. Notwithstanding some difficulties attending the manipulation of this instrument, Piney Woods managed to pluck several reluctant melodies from its keys to an accompaniment by the innocent on a pair of bone castanets. But the crowning festivity of the evening was reached in a rude camp meeting hymn, which the lovers, joining hands, sang with great earnestness and vociferation. I fear that a certain defiant tone and covenanter's swing to its chorus, rather than any devotional quality, caused it speedily to infect the others who at last joined in the refrain, I am proud to live in the service of the Lord, and I am bound to die in his army. The pines rocked, the storm eddied and whirled above the miserable group, and the flames of their altar leaped heavenward, as if in token of the vow. At midnight the storm abated, the rolling clouds parted, and the stars glittered keenly above the sleeping camp. Mr. Oakhurst, whose professional habits had enabled him to live on the smallest possible amount of sleep in dividing the watch with Tom Simpson, somehow managed to take upon himself the greater part of that duty. He excused himself to the innocent by saying that he had often been a week without sleep. "'Doing what?' asked Tom. "'Poker,' replied Oakhurst sententiously. "'When a man gets a streak of luck, he don't get tired. That luck gives in first. Luck, continued the gambler reflectively, is a mighty queer thing. All you know about it for certain is that it's bound to change, and it's finding out when it's going to change that makes you. We've had a streak of bad luck since we left Poker Flat. You come along and slap. You get into it, too. If you can hold your cards right along, you're all right. For, added the gambler with some cheerful irreverence, I'm proud to live in the service of the Lord, and I'm bound to die in his army. <laughs> The third day came, and the sun, looking through the white-curtained valley, saw the outcasts divide their slowly decreasing store of provisions for the morning meal. It was one of the peculiarities of that mountain climate that its rays diffused a kindly warmth over the wintry landscape, as if in regretful consideration of the past. But it revealed drift on drift of snow piled high around the hut, 
a hopeless, uncharted, trackless sea of white lying below the rocky shores to which the castaways still clung. Through the marvelously clear air, the smoke of the pastoral village of Poker Flat rose miles away. Mother Shipton saw it, and from a remote pinnacle of her rocky fastness, hurled in that direction a final malediction. It was her last vituperative attempt, and perhaps for that reason was invested with a certain degree of sublimity. It did her good, she privately informed the Duchess. Just you go out there and cuss. She then set herself to the task of amusing the child, as she and the Duchess were pleased to call Piney. Piney was no chicken, but it was a soothing and original theory of the pair, thus to account for the fact that she didn't swear and wasn't improper. When night crept up again through the gorges, the reedy notes of the accordion rose and fell in fitful spasms and long-drawn gasps by the flickering campfire. But music failed to fill entirely the aching void left by insufficient food, and a new diversion was proposed by Piney. Storytelling. Neither Mr. Oakhurst nor his female companions caring to relate their personal experiences, this plan would have failed too, but for the innocent. Some months before, he had chanced upon a stray copy of Mr. Pope's ingenious translation of the Iliad. He now proposed to narrate the principal incidents of that poem, having thoroughly mastered the argument and fairly forgotten the words, in the current vernacular of Sandy Barr. And so, for the rest of that night, the Homeric demigods again walked the earth. Trojan bully and wily Greek wrestled in the winds, and the great pines and the cannon seemed to bow to the wrath of the son of Peleus. Mr. Oakhurst listened with quiet satisfaction. Most especially, he was interested in the fate of Ash Heels, as the innocent persisted in denominating the swift-footed Achilles. So, with small food and much of Homer and the accordion, a week passed over the heads of the outcasts. The sun again forsook them, and again from leaden skies, the snowflakes were sifted over the land. Day by day, closer around them drew the snowy circle, until at last they looked from their prison over drifted walls of dazzling white that towered twenty feet above their heads. It became more and more difficult to replenish their fires, even from the fallen trees beside them, now half-hidden in the drifts. And yet no one complained. The lovers turned from the dreary prospect and looked into each other's eyes and were happy. Mr. Oakhurst settled himself coolly to the losing game before him. The Duchess, more cheerful than she had been, assumed the care of Piney, only Mother Shipton, once the strongest of the party, seemed to sicken and fade. At midnight on the tenth day she called Oakhurst to her side. I'm going, she said, in a voice of querulous weakness. But don't say anything about it. Don't waken the kids. Take the bundle from under my head and open it. Mr. Oakhurst did so. It contained Mother Shipton's rations for the last week, untouched. Give him to the child, she said, pointing to the sleeping piney. You've starved yourself, said the gambler. That's what they call it, said the woman querulously, as she lay down again, and turning her face to the wall, passed quietly away. The accordion and the bones were put aside that day, and Homer was forgotten. When the body of Mother Shipton had been committed to the snow, Mr. Oakhurst took the innocent aside and showed him a pair of snowshoes, which he had fashioned from an old pack saddle. There's one chance in a hundred to save her yet, he said, pointing to Piney. But it's there, he added, pointing toward Poker Flat. If you can reach there in two days, she's safe. And you? asked Tom Simpson. I'll stay here, was the curt reply. The lovers parted with a long embrace. Are you not going too? said the Duchess, as she saw Mr. Oakhurst apparently waiting to accompany him. As far as the Canaan, he replied. He turned suddenly and kissed the Duchess, leaving her pallid face aflame and her trembling limbs rigid with amazement. Night came, but not Mr. Oakhurst. It brought the storm again and the whirling snow. Then the Duchess, feeding the fire, found that someone had quietly piled beside the hut enough fuel to last a few days longer. The tears rose to her eyes, but she hid them from Piney. The women slept but little. In the morning, looking into each other's faces, they read their fate. Neither spoke, but Piney, accepting the position of the stronger, drew near and placed her arm around the Duchess's waist. They kept this attitude for the rest of the day. That night the storm reached its greatest fury, and, rending asunder the protecting vines, invaded the very hut. Toward morning they found themselves unable to feed the fire, which gradually died away. 
As the embers slowly beckoned, the Duchess crept closer to Piney and broke the silence of many hours. Piney, can you pray? No, dear, said Piney simply. The Duchess, without knowing exactly why, felt relieved, and putting her head upon Piney's shoulder, spoke no more. And so reclining, the younger and purer, pillowing the head of her soiled sister upon her virgin breast, they fell asleep. The wind lulled as if it feared to waken them. Feathery drifts of snow, shaken from the long pine boughs, the moon through the rifted clouds looked down upon what had been the camp. But all human stain, all trace of earthly travail, was hidden beneath the spotless mantle, mercifully flung from above. They slept all that day and the next, nor did they waken when voices and footsteps broke the silence of the camp. And when pitying fingers brushed the snow from their wan faces, you could scarcely have told from the equal peace that dwelt upon them which was she that had sinned. Even the law of Poker Flat recognized this and turned away, leaving them still locked in each other's arms. But at the head of the gulch, on one of the largest pine trees, they found the deuce of clubs, pinned to the bark with a bowie knife. It bore the following, written in pencil in a firm hand. Beneath this tree lies the body of John Oakhurst, who struck a streak of bad luck on the 23rd of November, 1850, and handed in his checks on the 7th December, 1850. And, pulseless and cold, with a derringer by his side and a bullet in his heart, though still calm as in life, beneath the snow lay he who was at once the strongest and yet the weakest of the outcasts of Poker Flat. The Girl Who Got Rattled by Stuart Edward White This is one of the stories of Alfred. There are many of them still floating around the West, for Alfred was in his time very well known. He was a little man, and he was bashful. That is the most that can be said against him, but he was very little and very bashful. When on horseback, his legs hardly reached the lower body line of his mount, and only his extreme agility enabled him to get on successfully. When on foot, strangers were inclined to call him Sonny, in company, he never advanced an opinion. If things did not go according to his ideas, he reconstructed the ideas and made the best of it. Only he could make the efficient best of the poorest ideas of any man on the plains. His attitude was a perpetual sidling apology. It has been said that Alfred killed his men diffidently, without enthusiasm, as though loath to take the responsibility. And this in the pioneer days on the plains was either frivolous affectation or else Alfred. With women, he was lost. Men would have staked their last ounce of dust at odds that he had never in his life made a definite assertion of fact to one of the opposite sex. When it became absolutely necessary to change a woman's preconceived notions as to what she should do, as, for instance, discouraging her riding through a quicksand, he would persuade somebody else to issue the advice, and he would cower in the background, blushing his absurd little blushes at his second-hand temerity. Add to this narrow, sloping shoulders, a soft voice, and a diminutive pink-and-white face. But Alfred could read the prairie like a book. He could ride anything, shoot accurately, was at heart afraid of nothing, and he could fight like a little catamount when occasion for it really arose. Among those who knew, Alfred was considered one of the best scouts on the plains. That is why Caldwell, the capitalist, engaged him when he took his daughter out to Deadwood. Miss Caldwell was determined to go to Deadwood, a limited experience of the ladies' sort where they have wooden floors to the tents, towels to the tent poles, and expert cooks to the delectation of the campers, and convinced her that roughing it was her favorite recreation. So, of course, Caldwell Sr. had sooner or later to take her across the plains on his annual trip. This was at the time when wagon trains went by way of Pierre on the north and the South Fork on the south. Incidental Indians of homicidal tendencies and undeveloped ideas as to the propriety of doing what they were told made things interesting occasionally, but not often. There was really no danger in a good-sized train. The daughter had a fiancé named Alan who liked roughing it too, so he went along. 
He and Miss Caldwell rigged themselves out bountifully and prepared to enjoy the trip. At Pierre, the train of eight wagons was made up, and they were joined by Alfred and Billy Knapp. These two men were interesting, but tyrannical on one or two points, such as getting out of sight of the train, for instance. They were also deficient in reasons for their tyranny. The young people chafed, and finding Billy Knapp either imperturbable or thick-skinned, they turned their attention to Alfred. Alan annoyed Alfred, and Miss Caldwell thoughtlessly approved of Alan. Between them, they succeeded often in shocking fearfully all the little man's finer sensibilities. If it had been a question of Alan alone, the annoyance would have soon ceased. Alfred would simply have bashfully killed him. But because of his innate courtesy, which so saturated him that his philosophy of life was thoroughly tinged by it, he was silent and inactive. There is a great deal to recommend a plane's journey at first. Later, there is nothing at all to recommend it. It has the same monotony as a voyage at sea, only there is less living room, and instead of being carried, you must progress to a great extent by your own volition. Also, the food is coarse, the water poor, and you cannot bathe. To a plainsman, or a man who has instinct, these things are as nothing in comparison with the charm of the outdoor life, and the pleasing tingling of adventure. But woman is a creature wedded to comfort. She also has a strange instinctive desire to be entirely alone every once in a while, probably because her experiences, while not less numerous than man's, are mainly psychical, and she needs occasionally time to get thought up to date. So Miss Caldwell began to get very impatient. The afternoon of the sixth day, Alfred, Miss Caldwell, and Alan rode along side by side. Alfred was telling a self-effacing story of adventure, and Miss Caldwell was listening carelessly because she had nothing else to do. Alan chafed lazily when the fancy took him. I happened to have a limb broken at the time. Alfred was observing parenthetically in his soft tones. And so... What kind of limb? asked the young Easterner with direct brutality. He glanced with a half-humorous aside at the girl, to whom the little man had been mainly addressing himself. Alfred hesitated, blushed, lost the thread of his tail, and finally, in great confusion, reined back his horse by the harsh Spanish bit. He fell to the rear of the little wagon train where he hung his head and went hot and cold by turns in thinking of such an indiscretion before a lady. The young Easterner spurred up on the right of the girl's mount. He's the queerest little fellow I ever saw, he observed with a laugh. Sorry to spoil his story, but was it a good one? It might have been if you hadn't spoiled it, answered the girl, flicking her horse's ears mischievously. The animal danced. What'd you do that for? Ah, just to see him squirm. He'll think about that all the rest of the afternoon and will hardly dare look you in the face next time you meet. I know. Isn't he funny? The other morning, he came around the corner of the wagon and caught me with my hair down. I wish you could have seen him. <laughs> she laughed gaily at the memory. Let's get ahead of the dust, she suggested. They drew aside to the firm turf of the prairie and put their horses to a slow lope. Once well ahead of the canvas-covered schooners, they slowed down to a walk again. Alfred says we'll see them tomorrow, said the girl. See what? Why, the hills. They'll show like a dark streak down past that butte there. What's its name? Porcupine Tail. Oh, yes. And after that, it's only three days. Aren't you glad? Are you? Yes, I believe I am. This life is fun at first, but there's a certain monotony in making your toilet where you have to duck your head because you haven't room to raise your hands. And this barreled water pals after a time. I think I'll be glad to see a house again. People like camping about so long- It hasn't gone back on me yet. Well, you're a man and can do things. Can't you do things? You know I can't. What do you suppose they'd say if I were to ride out just that way for two miles? They'd have a fit. Who would have a fit? Nobody but Alfred, and I didn't know you'd gotten afraid of him yet. I say just let's. We'll have a race, and then we'll come right back. The young man looked boyishly eager. It would be nice, she mused. They gazed into each other's eyes like a pair of children and laughed. Why shouldn't we? urged the young man. I'm dead sick of staying in the moving circle of these confounded wagons. What's the sense of it all, anyway? My Indians, I suppose, said the girl doubtfully. Indians, he replied with contempt. Indians? We haven't seen a sign of one since we left Pierre. I don't believe there's one in this whole blasted country. Besides, you know what Alfred said at our last camp? What did Alfred say? Alfred said he hadn't even seen a teepee trail, and that they must be all up hunting buffalo. Besides that, you don't imagine for a moment that your father would take you all this way to Deadwood just for a lark if there was the slightest danger, do you? I don't know. I made him. She looked out over the long, sweeping descent to which they were coming, and the long, sweeping ascent that lay beyond. 
The breeze and the sun played with the prairie grasses, the breeze riffling them over and the sun silvering under their surfaces thus exposed. It was strangely peaceful, and one almost expected to hear the hum of bees as in a New England orchard. In it all was no sign of life. We'd get lost, she said finally. Oh no we wouldn't, he asserted with all the eagerness of the amateur plainsman. I've got all that figured out. You see, our train is going on a line with that butte behind us and the sun. If we go ahead and keep our shadows just pointing to the butte, we'll be right in their line of march. He looked to her for admiration of his cleverness. She seemed convinced. She agreed and sent him back to her wagon for some article of invented necessity. While he was gone, she slipped softly over the little hill to the right, cantered rapidly over two more, and slowed down with a sigh of satisfaction. One alone could watch the directing shadow as well as two. She was free and alone. It was the one thing she had desired for the last six days of the Long Plains journey, and she enjoyed it now to the full. No one had seen her go. The drivers droned stupidly along, as was their wont. The occupants of the wagons slept, as was their wont. And the diminutive Alfred was hiding his blushes behind clouds of dust in the rear, as was not his wont at all. He had been severely shocked, and he might have brooded over it all afternoon if a discovery had not startled him to activity. On a bare spot of the prairie, he discerned the print of a hoof. It was not that of one of the train's animals. Alfred knew this because just to one side of it caught under a grass blade so cunningly that only the little scout's eyes could have discerned it at all was a single blue bead. Alfred rode out on the prairie to the right and left and found the hoof prints of about thirty ponies. He pushed his hat back and wrinkled his brow, for the one thing he was looking for he could not find. The two narrow furrows made by the ends of teepee poles dragging along either side of the ponies. The absence of these indicated that the band was composed entirely of bucks, and bucks were likely to mean mischief. He pushed ahead of the whole party, his eyes fixed earnestly on the ground. At the top of the hill he encountered the young Easterner. The latter looked puzzled in a half-humorous way. I left Miss Caldwell here a half minute ago, he observed to Alfred, and I guess she's given me the slip. Scold her good for me when she comes in, will ya? He grinned with good-natured malice at the idea of Alfred scolding anyone. Then Alfred surprised him. The little man straightened suddenly in his saddle and uttered a fervent curse. After a brief circle about the prairie, he returned to the young man. You go back to the wagons and wake up Billy Knapp and tell him this, that I've gone scouting some. I want him to watch out. Understand? Watch out! What? Began the Easterner, bewildered. I'm a-going to find her, said the little man decidedly. You don't think there's any danger, do you? Asked the Easterner in anxious tones. Can't I help you? You do as I tell you, replied the little man shortly and rode away. He followed Miss Caldwell's trail quite rapidly, for the trail was fresh. As long as he looked intently for hoof marks, nothing was to be seen. The prairie was apparently virgin. But by glancing the eye forty or fifty yards ahead, a faint line was discernible through the grasses. Alfred came upon Miss Caldwell seated quietly on her horse in the very center of a prairie dog town. And so, of course, in the midst of an area of comparatively desert character. She was amusing herself by watching the marmots as they barked or watched or peeped at her according to their distance from her. The sight of Alfred was not welcome, for he frightened the marmots. When he saw Miss Caldwell, Alfred grew bashful again. He sidled his horse up to her and blushed. "'I'll show you the way back, miss,' he said diffidently. "'Thank you,' replied Miss Caldwell with a slight coldness. "'I can find my own way back.' Uh, "'Yes, of course,' hastened Alfred in an agony. "'But don't you think we ought to start back now? I'd like to go with you, miss, if you'd let me. You see, the afternoon's quite late.' Miss Caldwell cast a quizzical eye at the sun. "'Why, it's hours yet till dark,' she said, amusedly. Then Alfred surprised Miss Caldwell. His diffident manner suddenly left him. He jumped like lightning from his horse, threw the reins over the animal's head so he would stand, and ran around to face Miss Caldwell. "'Here, jump down,' he commanded. The soft southern burr of this ordinary conversation had given place to a clear incisiveness. Miss Caldwell looked at him, amazed." Seeing that she did not at once obey, Alfred actually began to fumble hastily with the straps that held her riding skirt in place. This was so unusual in the bashful Alfred that Miss Caldwell roused and slipped lightly to the ground. Now what? she asked. Alfred, without replying, drew the bit to within a few inches of the animal's hooves and tied both fetlocks firmly together with the double loop. 
This brought the pony's nose down close to his shackled feet. Then he did the same thing with his own beast. Thus, neither animal could do so much as hobble one way or the other. They were securely moored. Alfred stepped a few paces to the eastward. Miss Caldwell followed. Sit down, said he. Miss Caldwell obeyed with some nervousness. She did not understand at all, and that made her afraid. She began to have a dim fear lest Alfred might have gone crazy. His next move strengthened this suspicion. He walked away ten feet and raised his hand over his head, palm forward. She watched him so intently that for a moment she saw nothing else. Then she followed the direction of his gaze and uttered a little sobbing cry. Just below the skyline of the first slope to eastward was silhouetted a figure on horseback. The figure on horseback sat motionless. We're in for a fight, said Alfred, coming back after a moment. He won't answer my peace sign, and he's a Sioux. We can't make a run for it through this dogtown. We've just got to stand him off. He threw down the back lever of his old forty-four Winchester and softly uncocked the arm. Then he sat down by Miss Caldwell. From various directions, silently, warriors on horseback sprang into sight and moved dignifiedly toward the first comer, forming at the last a band of perhaps thirty men. They talked together for a moment, and then, one by one, at regular intervals, detached themselves and began circling at full speed to the left, throwing themselves behind their horses and yelling shrill-voiced, but firing no shot as yet. They'll rush us, speculated Alfred. We're too few to monkey with this way. This is a bluff. The circle about the two was now complete. After watching the whirl of figures a few minutes and the motionless landscape beyond, the eye became dizzy then confused. They won't have no picnic, went on Alfred with a little chuckle. Dog holes as bad for them as for us. They don't know how to fight. If they was to come in on all sides, I couldn't handle them, but they always rush in a bunch like damn fools. Alfred became suffused with blushes and commenced to apologize abjectly and profusely to a girl who had heard neither the word nor its atonement. The savages and the approaching fight were all that she could think of. Suddenly, one of the Sioux threw himself forward under his horse's neck and fired. The bullet went wild, of course, but it shrieked with the rising inflection of a wind squall through the bared boughs, seeming to come ever nearer. Miss Caldwell screamed and covered her face. The savages yelled in chorus. The one shot seemed to be the signal for a spattering fire all along the line. Indians never clean their rifles, rarely get good ammunition, and are deficient in the philosophy of hindsights. Besides this, it is not easy to shoot at long range in a constrained position from a running horse. Alfred watched them contemptuously in silence. They keep that up long enough, the wagon train may hear them, he said finally. Wish we weren't so far to Norard. There it's coming, he said more excitedly. The chief had paused, and as the warriors came to him, they threw their ponies back on their haunches and sat motionless. They turned, the ponies' heads toward the two. Alfred arose deliberately for a better look. Yeah, that's right, he said to himself. That's old Lone Pine, sure thing. I reckon we all's gotta make a good fight. The girl had sunk to the ground and was shaking from head to foot. It is not nice to be shot at in the best of circumstances, but to be shot at by odds of thirty to one, and the thirty of an outlandish and terrifying species, is not nice at all. Miss Caldwell had gone to pieces badly, and Alfred looked grave. He thoughtfully drew from its holster his beautiful colts with its ivory handle, and laid it on the grass. Then he blushed hot and cold, and looked at the girl doubtfully. A sudden movement in the group of savages as the war chief rode to the front decided him. Miss Caldwell, he said. The girl shivered and moaned. Oh. Alfred dropped to his knees and shook her shoulder roughly. Look up here, he commanded. We ain't got but a minute. Composed a little by the firmness of his tone, she sat up. Her face had gone chalky, and her hair had partly fallen over her eyes. Now, listen to every word, he said rapidly. Those engines is going to rush us in a minute. Perhaps I can break them, but I don't know. And that pistol there, I'll always save two shots. Understand? It's always loaded. If I see it's all up, I'm going to shoot you with one of them, and myself with the other. Oh! cried the girl, her eyes opening wildly. She was paying close enough attention now. And if they kill me first? He reached forward and seized her wrist impressively. If they kill me first, you must take that pistol and shoot yourself. You understand? Shoot yourself. In the head. Here. He tapped his forehead with a stubby forefinger. The girl shrank back in horror. Alfred snapped his teeth together and went on grimly. If they get a hold of you, he said with solemnity, 
They'll first take off every stitch of your clothes. And when you're quite naked, they'll stretch you out on the ground with a rawhide to each of your arms and legs. And then they'll drive a stake through the middle of your body to the ground and leave you there to die slowly. And the girl believed him, because incongruously enough, even through her terror, she noticed that at this, the most immodest speech of his life, Alfred did not blush. She looked at the pistol lying on the turf with horrified fascination. The group of Indians, which had up to now remained fully a thousand yards away, suddenly screeched and broke into a run directly toward the dog town. There is an indescribable rush in a charge of savages. The little ponies make their feet go so fast, the feathers and trappings of the warriors stream behind so frantically, the whole attitude of horse and man is so eager that one gets an impression of fearful speed and resistless power. The horizon seems full of Indians. As if this were not sufficiently terrifying, the air is throbbing with sound. Each Indian pops away for general results as he comes jumping along, and yells shrilly to show what a big warrior he is, while underneath it all is the hurried monotone of hoofbeats becoming ever louder, as the roar of an increasing rainstorm on the roof. It does not seem possible that anything can stop them. Yet there is one thing that can stop them if skillfully taken advantage of, and that is their lack of discipline. An Indian will fight hard when cornered, or when heated by lively resistance, but he hates to go into it in cold blood. As he nears the opposing rifle, this feeling gets stronger. So often with a man with nerve enough to hold his fire, can break a fierce charge merely by waiting until it is within 50 yards or so, and then suddenly raising the muzzle of his gun. If he had gone to shooting at once, the affair would have become a combat and the Indians would have ridden him down. As it is, each has had time to think. By the time the white man is ready to shoot, the suspense has done its work. Each savage knows that but one will fall, but cold-blooded, he does not want to be that one. And since in such disciplined fighters it is each for himself, he promptly ducks behind his mount and circles away to the right or left. The whole band swoops and divides like a flock of swift-winged terns on a windy day. This Alfred relied on in the approaching crisis. The girl watched the wild sweep of the warriors with strained eyes. She had to grasp her wrist firmly to keep from fainting, and she seemed incapable of thought. Alfred sat motionless on a dog mound, his rifle across his lap. He did not seem in the least disturbed. It's good to fight again, he murmured, gently fondling the stock of his rifle. Come on, you devils. Hoo-hoo, he cried as a warrior's horse went down into a dog hole. I thought so. His eyes began to shine. The ponies came skipping here and there, nimbly dodging in and out between the dog holes. Their riders shot and yelled wildly, but none of the bullets went lower than ten feet. The circle of their advance looked somehow like the surge shoreward of a great wave, and the similarity was heightened by the nodding glimpses of the light eagle's feathers in their hair. The run across the honeycombed plain was hazardous, even to Indian ponies, and three went down kicking one after the other. Two of the riders lay stunned. The third sat up and began to rub his knee. The pony belonging to Miss Caldwell, becoming frightened, threw itself and lay on its side, kicking out frantically with its hind legs. At the proper moment, Alfred cocked his rifle and rose swiftly to his knees. As he did so, the mound on which he had been kneeling caved into the hole beneath it and threw him forward on his face. With a furious curse, he sprang to his feet and leveled the rifle at the thick of the press. The scheme worked. In a flash, every savage disappeared behind his pony, and nothing was to be seen but an arm and a leg. The band divided on either hand as promptly as though the signal for such a drill had been given and swept gracefully around in two long circles, until it reined up motionless at nearly the exact point from which it had started on its imposing charge. Alfred had not fired a shot. He turned to the girl with a short laugh. <laughs> she lay face upward on the ground, staring at the sky with wide-open, horror-stricken eyes. In her brow was a small blackened hole, and under her head, which lay strangely flat against the earth, the grasses had turned red. Near her hand lay the heavy Colt forty-four. Alfred looked at her a minute without winking. Then he nodded his head. It was because I fell down that hole. She thought they'd got me. He said aloud to himself, poor little gal, she hadn't ought to have did it. He blushed deeply, and turning his face away, pulled down her skirt until it covered her ankles. Then he picked up his Winchester and fired three shots. The first hit directly back of the ear one of the stunned Indians who had fallen with his horse. 
The second went through the other stunned Indian's chest. The third caught the Indian with a broken leg between the shoulders just as he tried to get behind his struggling pony. Shortly after, Billy Knapp and the wagon train came along. Well, it seems as though there were several different ways to die in the Old West, and none of them seem particularly pleasant, but they do make for some good stories. Well, thanks so much to Kate from the Explorers podcast, to Jen from the Haunted Happenstance podcast, Moxie from Your Brain on Facts, and of course, my mom, Deb. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word in whatever way you see fit. And of course, you can always leave a review on iTunes to be read on the show, or you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash syypodcast. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that in to syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. And next week, we've got a couple of original stories submitted by listeners, and they are going to take us to some very dark places indeed. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.